I can have everyone to their seats, please. If I can have everyone to their seats. Everyone to their seats, please. Thank you. What a festive bunch this morning. So many made it out in this terrible weather. Thank you for being here. Anything short of a beautiful day, people are like, I ain't even going to church today. So, two years ago, in October 2016, we had the privilege of sending out a husband and a wife who had become members of our church to Africa, working for Wycliffe Bible Translations. And the original plan with them was to, over the course of their being there, was to, on a Sunday morning, Skype with them and get feedback and let us know how things are going in Africa. So we wanted to have them on the screen and we were going to try to do that through the computer. We decided not to do that and instead they came here to update us. That's what you call technology right there. When you can go from the screen to in person. We're grateful to have them join us this morning. They want to fill you in about what they've been doing and sort of what, 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 what they were doing there and then sort of what transition they're experiencing now. And I'm, I'm privileged to have them be back with us this morning. So let's welcome Alex and Megan Mercado. Thanks, Kurt. It is so good to be back here uh, to worship with all of you. I, I miss this body. I miss the beautiful, beautiful times of worship, of prayer, of getting to know each other that we've had together. Megan and I have been, it's, it's amazing to think that it's been two years since we've been gone. Now, Megan and I work for Wycliffe Bible Translators. If you don't know, there are about 7,000 languages in the world. And Wycliffe's mission is to make it so that everybody can read or hear the Bible in a language that they understand. And many of them can't right now. We've been away for these two years, first in Kenya, and now we're in Dallas working for the international organization. Wycliffe works to analyze languages, to work with local communities in Bible translation. We create alphabets and help people read and more. It's an organization full of people with different roles. And Megan and I have different roles. Megan works uh, to make literacy programs so people can read and write in their own language. And I work to make software. I, I want to share a little bit with you about the impact that having the Bible in someone's own language can really make. And, and not just the impact, not just the access, but the beauty that God can show us about himself through that translation. This story comes from Cameroon, which is dear to our hearts because it's where we met. Um, an American translator was working with the Hidi language. In a dream one night, God prompted him to look back at the word they were using to translate love. For most verbs in Hadi, they had a form that ended in I, a form that ended in A, and a form that ended in U. Nice grammar system. But for love, they were only finding the words ending in I and A, Dvi and Dva. Why wasn't there a Dvu? Lee asked the translation committee, a group of respected old men in the community, could you dve your wife? Yes, they said. That would mean that the wife had been loved. 
but the love was gone. Could you dvah your wife? Yes, that meant the wife was bringing water, cooking, being faithful to her husband, and so she was loved. Could you dvu your wife? They laughed. Of course not. To devu your wife, that would mean that you had to love her even if she never cooked, didn't take care of the kids, even if she was unfaithful to you. That kind of love doesn't exist. We would never say devu. The translator thought of John 3.16 and said, could God devu people? There was silence in the room for three or four minutes. And then these old respected men started crying. They said, do you know what this would mean? This would mean that God kept loving us millennia after millennia while all the time we rejected his great love. He is compelled to love us even though we are the most sinful of all people. One simple vowel and the meaning was changed from I love you based on what you do to I love you based on who I am. Devu is a lesson, not just for the Hidi, but it's a lesson for me. I, I love getting to do the work that God has given me in ministry, but I need to remember it is not about what I accomplish, but that God, God has loved me first. Two years ago, we left here, and we went to Kenya, and about three days after we got to Kenya, things started changing really, really fast. The government was no longer our friend, they wanted to tax us as much as they possibly could. And indeed, most of our coworkers there had to leave the country over the next year or so. And we did too. It was a really tumultuous time. And in that time also, we, we realized that we had some struggles first in our marriage and then in our brains. That our brains were turning on us. There was, we were really, really lucky. There's a, there a counseling center just for missionaries right there in Nairobi. It was about 15 minutes from our house. People come from all over the continent to go to that counseling center, missionaries, to get help so that they can continue their work in the field. And we really wanted to work on each other, so we went there. We wanted to be able to sustain, to continue to love one another as we were loving other people. And when we were there, we found out that, that Megan has... Uh, a mental illness that makes it really, really hard to live there. We, we continued to, we, took, we saw psychiatrists, we saw counselors, we took drugs. Um, took she took drugs. It's the... Yeah. I guess that's just two becoming one, right? But over months and months and months, um, the problems were really still there. And our doctors told us that we needed to find a place where we could try lots of medications. We needed to find a place where we could step aside from the stress of living in Nairobi. And let me tell you, if you think traffic here is bad. <laughs> but meanwhile, God still blessed us by making us part of beautiful things that he was doing. Megan works in literacy, and she got to work with several languages, not just in Kenya, but also in Tanzania, to get them started in doing literacy in their own language, so that not just kids, but even adults could learn to read and write their own language. I got to help create software for local, really big 
organizations, for the Kenyan government to be able to better track the performance of schools so they could see how kids were doing in reading, writing, and math in their own language, in English, and in Swahili. It was helping everybody. I'm, I'm so glad we got that opportunity. But finally, it was really clear that God wanted us, we needed to let go of that, that man-made vision that we had for ourselves there. And it was really natural to go back to Dallas. So that's what we did. I'm from Dallas. It was really natural to be there with my family. And our headquarters is there. So we've been able to pursue treatment there. We found a beautiful body of believers there to worship, to love, and to grow with. And I've really blossomed in the work that I get to do. I, I know this, I know not everyone cares about the details of my work, but I'm just so excited. I'm like gushing. I get so excited. I, I, I think so when, I, when I want to do something fun, I'm like, I can work. Working is fun. <laughs> so I, I make software that enables people to not just translate the Bible, but all the things around it. Everything from being able to type in their language to being able to tell children's stories in their language. I design the software that our developers write. And there's a lot to do. We have a lot of workers, and all of those workers need tools. Megan now, she misses being able to be in the field, but from Dallas, she gets to supply our literacy projects all over the world with the information that they need to really succeed in the work. So <laughs> she likes to say she writes college papers that people actually read. <laughs> and they're actually important for getting that work done. I want to close by sharing a story that I find illustrates really well the the community that we need to get this kind of work done. It comes from back in Exodus 35, and God has commanded the, Israelite, the Israelites to create the tent of meeting. It's a sanctuary for his presence. I just want to read a couple excerpts to, to illustrate. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord's commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. They came, everyone whose heart was stirred among them, everyone whose spirit was moved, and brought the Lord's contribution for use in the tent of meeting, for its service, and for the holy garments. All who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings, signet rings, armlets, all sorts of gold, Every man dedicated an offering of gold to the Lord. Every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set, the ephod and the breastpiece, spices, anointing oil, fragrant incense. Craftsmen worked to create this beautiful, beautiful place to worship the Lord. And so many people brought different things. We believe that God is calling the two of us to be part of one of these projects that he's doing. It's not a physical building, but a gathering of people to himself to communicate the gospel to people in their own language. Maybe, like a skill, the skillful women who spin yarn, you have abilities that can contribute to that effort. Maybe like the men who brought onyx stones, you have material gifts that you can contribute. Megan and I have a budget that we need to keep, continue 
that, that we need to fulfill to be able to do our work, and we're only receiving about 80% of the funds that we need to do the work that we do. And of course, so many of those people brought the offering of prayer. And I ask that you intercede for us. I hope that you can see there is so much room for God to intercede in our lives. I want to ask you to pray for us. So I want to thank you um, for your continued support. For con- So many of you are new to me, but so many of you also have been praying for me for years. And I want to thank you for that. Kurt? Stay up here. Stay up here. Per their request, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the great love that you have shown us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, I thank you that you have entrusted us with uh, the word, the good word, that we might be people who willingly and exuberantly share that word with those that are around us and those that are around the world. Father, I thank you for Alex and Megan and for their commitment and desire to serve you, for the calling that you have on their life to utilize their gifts and skills to translate your word into languages uh, that don't have your word. So, Father, I commend them to you and ask that you might make good use of them. Father, as clay pots, Father, they may be weak in their bodies, but, Father, their strength is drawn from you. And, Father, for that we give you glory. We commit them into your hands, Lord. You know the needs that they have, not just physically and emotionally, Uh, but, Father, also financially. And, Father, I ask that you would be at work in their circle of uh, friends and acquaintances and, Father, even those that may not know them well or know them at all, but, Lord, that there might be a support for their ministry that comes financially. Uh, Lord, that, that we might understand as believers that you have commanded us, Father, to give willingly and joyfully to forward your work in this world. Father, I commit them into your hands. Ask that you'd protect them as they travel. Protect them as they they care for one another as a couple. And Lord, as they do their ministry in Dallas, Father, I pray that they would be able to continue to rejoice in seeing you make use of who they are and what they love and their love for you. We commit them into your hands in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, guys. One of the reasons as a church we had a conviction to support them financially was because of a designation that Jesus gave himself. One of the, out of all the names that Jesus could have chosen to describe who he is, and he does have many, one of the main ones that Jesus chose to describe himself to the world is that he's the word of God. The word. So words matter to God. We see that at the Tower of Babel. The irony of separating culture, people by languages, only to bring them back together by the one word of God. 
And so what Alex and Megan are doing is very significant. It's taking the word of God and translating it into people so that they have the words of God. This is one of our convictions. So they're going to be here today and for a few days. Do you guys have the New Testament stuff with you? Okay. And one of the ushers, if we can get a table set out in the lobby for them, so after service, they have New Testament Bibles in a couple different languages. Let's take a look at those, and I'd ask each of us to consider if it's possible to support them and what they're doing. They're doing a significant work. Uh, they were in Africa, now they're here, and the work is just as significant. So let's support them. All right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We will continue on in our series. And this particular passage that we're in today reminds me, ironically, surprisingly reminded me of something in November 14th, 2003, music icon and mogul Jay-Z released what would then be, or what was considered to be by him, his last studio album, and it was called The Black Album. Now, history tells us he didn't retire too long. But then it was a big deal in culture because Jay-Z was an icon and a music, rap music mogul. On this album, the Black Album, the second song on this album, which was actually one of my favorite songs then, was called What More Can I Say? And in this song, which is typical for Jay-Z, it was him making a declaration that he has basically proved and said everything that he needs to say for everyone to think he's the best at what he does. And in the hook, the chorus of the song was someone singing, and actually we're going to play a few minutes of this song because I want you, no, I'm just kidding, we're not going to play this song. <laughs> Had a few people in here ready to leave the church. But in the hook of this song, the, the, the person singing said these words, what more can I say? What more can I do to get this through to you? And I'm not going to sing it because I can't sing. But it made a powerful statement. His point was, what else can I say? What else can I do to prove to you that I am the best at this? I'm the best at rapping. I'm the best at making money. I'm the best at influencing culture. And at that particular time, it was undisputable. He was. That, the reason why I'm telling that is because the passage we have today, I feel like if God were to make a declaration like that, I think he would and could be the only one to really say that as I read the words of the passage today, it's almost as if, it's almost as if Paul, speaking on behalf of God, is introducing the same idea. What else, what more 
can God say and do to convince people that he really is who he says he is and that we really are who he says we are. Now, the passage will be familiar. We'll go over these words. We've read these words. We've heard these words. We know these words. But because of that, the familiarity of these words makes us forget the significance of these words. And it's almost as if God is asking, what more can I say? When Becky came up to the mic, right before she got on the mic, I sat in the back. I was thinking about my son who has motto, and I was praying for him. And when Becky got on the mic, right before she did, I said to myself, you know what, Lord? I bet you some of us are struggling with, struggling with saying, take all of it. I bet you. And I had this thought, you should go up there. And I thought, no, not this time. Then I heard Becky's voice. And she said exactly, probably better than I would have said it, what I wanted to say. And I said, wow, Lord, we're on the same page today. So, Becky, you stole my idea, and I want to see you after church. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Thank you. Because this is our reality. What Becky brought up was not for a few of us. It's where many of us live. Many of us live with the notion and the fear, the fear, the real fear, that maybe God doesn't care about us as much as we think. I'm not saying everyone in this room does, but I'm your pastor, your brother. I counsel a lot of you. I'm not speaking hyperbole, speaking from reality. Many of us struggle with this notion. Does he really forgive me again? If I say these words, take all of this, Lord. More of you means less of me, saying the same thing that John the Baptist said. Remember when John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. But that same John the Baptist found himself in a prison for being righteous and then told his disciples to ask Jesus, the same one that he must decrease for, if, are you still the Messiah? Because our circumstances affect the way we view God. And the thing that we struggle with the most is, does what he say about me, is it true? Well, today's passage, Romans 5, 6 through 11, I believe, I believe God is saying, what more can I say? What more must I do to get this through to you. So let's read. Beginning in verse 6, reading from the CSB version, and I quote, 
For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps, someone might even dare to die, verse 8. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, verse 9. How much more then, since we now have been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved from his wrath? Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Verse 11. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received his reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, the questions, what more can I say, what more can I do, are not really questions that you ask or need to ask, but I believe at times as you, and when Jesus, when you were in the, in the flesh, when you were a human being, there were times you marveled at the lack of faith that people had. You were genuinely confused, perplexed by people not believing that you were who you said you were based on your actions. You know, we are, many of us in this room are believers, people who, who believe in you and who have, to varying degrees, different levels of maturity, different different degrees of struggles and sufferings, different crosses to carry, varying levels of doubt. All of us are in different places on some level as it relates to these things. But all of us can at some point or have at some point really question, really question, are we genuinely forgiven? Are you really angry at us? Are you tired of us? Are you disappointed in us? Will we really stand before you and not receive any punishment for our sin? And while we're more, we're more trained to not question in such, such vulgarity, we do at times wonder, is this real? The pressure of the culture is challenging us to even rethink what we've always thought was clear and obvious, to pressure us to accept things that are obviously unclear. So I pray this morning that as I analogically used Jay-Z's song to communicate a question that I think can be asked from you from this passage, I pray that we would get a firm answer this morning, one greater than anything Jay-Z could ever say or do. For your glory and for our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Last week, I made this point, and I want to say it again so that it transitions us to today because it's just as important that the things that we have to have faith in are not just Jesus died on the cross for our sin. That's good. That's sort of 
I honestly think that that's kind of entry level. That's 101. In fact, it's so entry level to think that, that people who don't believe, who don't live for the Lord, actually claim that, will believe that. We've seen this, all of us, at sporting events, award shows, where people who, from our vantage point, that have never publicly declared any allegiance to Jesus Christ will say something upon accepting an award like, I want to thank God or the man upstairs, who without him, none of this would be possible. None of this will happen. We see it all the time. As a matter of fact, at one award show, there was a gospel singer singing a song, and they were showing clips of people in the stands, very famous musicians and artists, maybe, maybe, some of the people that we would even like and they were in agreement and nodding and singing, but yet there's nothing that we know of about their lives that would indicate they actually believe the words, but it felt good. It feels good. This is why when you go to a funeral, if you've been to a funeral where you know the person was not a Christian, rarely will you hear the preacher give them their true destination. You will often hear this person is in a better place. The challenge with that statement, from God's perspective, and, and I believe this is the word of God, so I don't even get into, well, that's what you're about. Fine. You know, I don't need to defend Jesus. I don't need to defend the Bible. If someone disagrees with the Bible, we will figure out who's right one day. I'm not going to, when you can prove to me he doesn't exist, I'll prove to you that he does. But we are, we are faced with this, this reality, and I think it affects us. It affects us. It affects our confidence when we start thinking. In Psalm 73, the psalmist was watching people who don't believe in God flourish. And he was getting discouraged. And the whole, the majority of the psalm is him highlighting all of the beautiful people, all of the rich people, all of the stuff that they just seem like they are enjoying their lives. And here he's trying to honor the Lord. And for all intent purposes, this, the psalmist felt miserable. Why do they get to have all the fun and experience all the pleasures and get all the money and all the accolades and all the encouragement and all the accomplishment? And here I'm trying to honor you and I feel like I'm the last man standing. And then he said this statement in Psalm 73. But when I saw their plight, meaning when this life is over and I saw what happens to them, based on what you said in your word, it was a turning point. The psalmist realized that though I feel this way now, there is a time coming when the tables will turn, when there will be an eternal about face. And those who experience all of that now will be faced with some challenges then. And those who experience those challenges now will be faced with the pleasures then. This is a biblical paradigm that is real and really difficult. So today, my hope is that this passage will assist us 
and are continuing, those of us who do genuinely believe in Jesus, will assist us in our ongoing pursuit of him, despite sometimes not wanting to do it. Beginning in verse 6, he says this, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. This verse, let me say one thing, and I'm sure you all know this, but when we, we break up the Bible in portions and pieces, and we teach it each Sunday. But he, Paul didn't write this letter and stop at Romans 5, 1 through 5, and then come back next week and write 6 through 11, and then come back, right? So he's writing this as a train of thought. We're stopping to absorb it, but he's continuing a train of thought. But at the beginning of this train of thought, he says something that is significantly important for those who believe in Jesus Christ. It is one of the greatest identity statements in the Bible. He says this in the first six words. For while we were still helpless at the right time. He says we were still helpless. Your translation might say we were still weak. Your translation might say we were still sinners. This is an important identity statement. He's making a distinction from who you are to God and who you were to God. Here's why this is important. Because we are people who still sin. We are saints who still sin. And when we feel the consequences of our sin and we think God thinks of us differently because we sin, we don't think we were this way. We think we are this way. And our functional identity, the way God sees us, is that we are this way. But God is pushing back and saying, you were this way. From God's perspective, those who believe in Jesus Christ were helpless, were weak. And by helpless and weak, what he's getting at, it sounds, it sounds passive, like like it's not a choice, and it isn't. This is what he's saying. You were weak. You were helpless to do anything to please God. You're helpless. You're weak because you're sinners. It's who you were. There was no way possible. It was you were completely incapable of doing anything that would contribute to God accepting you like he did in Romans 5.1. When it said we have peace with God. Incapable. Incapable. We were still sinners. We were. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are a genuine Christian, it's important that you remember that we fundamentally believe that the Bible is inspired by God. So none of us believe that someone just sat down and wrote these words to encourage us. That we actually believe that God is communicating to us through these words. But it battles how we feel. It battles how we feel. This is not my experience. And this is where our faith must come in and press through. Because if our experience, if our experience becomes a determining factor, then it becomes sight, not faith. If my experience becomes the barometer for God's faithfulness, then it becomes sight, not faith. 
It has to be, I believe this because you said it, Lord, but I don't see it yet. I don't see this yet. I don't feel like this yet. I used to hate this question. Hey, so what does it feel like to be a pastor? Like, huh? Like I wake up with like, the spirit just wakes me up. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Jesus. And then, you know, my breakfast is made for me. And then the Bible is open to the passage that he wants me to read. And then I read it and I have this revelation that I can't wait to come and teach Sunday. And then I get out and I just love everybody. And this is what it means to be a pastor. Man, please. I get up, grab my phone. I got a couple notifications on Facebook. I scroll through. I got to get the kids up. I need to use the bathroom. Let me do that. I'm still looking at this notification, trying to figure out. I'm laughing at this meme on this wall. Okay, I got 10 more. I can, I can wait five more months before I get them up. I'm looking through this stuff. I'm doing that. I see, hold up, what is Brandon doing online at a radio station at 6 a.m. in the morning? I'm looking at Brandon online playing music, and I'm scrolling through. Hold up, what's today? Oh, let me check my fantasy real quick. Let me go and make sure that I made my adjustments. Now it's 6.12. Let me go up and wake up Von Von and bring him down because his bus comes in about an hour. Let me do that. He says, Poppy, can I lay back down for a few minutes? Yeah, go ahead, Von Von. You got 20 more minutes. He lays down. Back to the phone. Let me see what else is going on. Let me see what else I got going on. Let me do this. Man, I should put this down and pray. You know what you write. But hold on, let me just make sure I made my pick. I chose what I got to do. Let me check this email that I send this real quick. Next thing you know, my day is gone. That's what a pastor feels like. The same battles, the same work to put God first. To say, Lord, thank you for waking me up this morning. Thank you for your grace. Help me to glorify you first and foremost. Help me to be reminded of who I am and to honor you today and not care about what notifications I get. Oh, man, somebody likes the album. Let me see what they said. There's no such thing as feeling like a pastor, feeling like a Christian, feeling like you were still were sinners. It doesn't feel like that. What it feels like is I'm ungodly. That part I can take. Christ died for the ungodly. Check, I agree with that. I can see that's one I can feel. That's one we can prove. This is a couple of hours ago, at least. While we were still helpless, incapable of bringing anything to make God have peace with us. While we were still incapable, while we were helpless, while we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. There's a specific time. God is very specific. If you know anything, one of the things in the Old Testament to me about God is people say all these things about God, but I feel like no one highlights the, 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 spe- the specific way that God wants things done. There's a, there's a way that God, I mean, God is, hey, take a quarter inch of wood, cut this off, sand this back, get this particular color, make sure the gold wraps around this, build this up. The temple must be these cubits, this height, do this. Don't have this. Don't make the road too long. Don't do this. Don't do that. I'm just like, man, God is like, talking about attention to detail? Attention to detail. Like, don't, when God said, look, don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. And these dudes were carrying it, and it started to fall. And one dude thought he was doing a nice thing, like, well, I don't want to hit the ground. He touched it and died. And they got angry at God, and he said, I said, don't touch the covenant. <laughs> Why are you mad at me? I said, don't touch it. I ain't saying if it falls, keep it back up. Like, don't touch it. Like, I made the very dirt it's going to fall on. 
The God touching it is dirtier to me than the ground it would fall on. Don't touch the covenant. That's how he is. Very specific. Very detailed. Very detailed. This is a very specific, very detailed passage. Christ died for the ungodly. And at a very specific time, God said, okay, here's the time to enter into humanity and to be the sacrifice. Here's the right time. This is when you go. This is what we're doing. And Jesus shows up. Perfect time. Very specific. Christ dies for the ungodly. Now, this statement, Christ died for the ungodly, we get it. But God is not satisfied with that. He wants to make a point. He's making a, a point by contrasting the kinds of people that people would die for. So there's sort of a, a consequence. I want you to see this. There's a consequence of Christ's love, and it's his death. That's the consequence of his love. It's his death. And, and, and God proves it in verse 7. This is what he says. This is a statement of, of logic. He says this. For rarely will someone... Rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps, someone might even dare to die. Okay, listen, listen to what he's saying. He said, Christ died for the ungodly. But then to show the difference, the contrast, he says this, for uh, rarely will someone, he said, rarely will someone die for a just person. So the natural person, just a natural person will not give up his life, even for someone that's a good person, someone that's godly. So you got some people get kidnapped. You don't know them, they don't know you. And you realize in talking to them, man, this is a good dude. And they come in ready to take this person's life. God says, from his perspective, rarely will someone say, no, take mine instead. He's a good dude. You're going to be like, man, I'm trying to see my kids, too. So, man, you're a good dude. You lived a good life, man. I'm sure you got something waiting for you. He said, no one. And look, some of y'all laugh because that's what you would do, too. You would be like, hey, look, man, I'm trying to see my kids grow up. Like Becky said, I mean, you know, I want to see some things, too. You know, you can take my life, but not yet. Take kids first, and then let me see. Mm -hmm. Revealing hearts today. So rarely will someone die for a just person. So someone wouldn't die for someone that's actually a godly person. And then he says, though for a good person, perhaps someone might die. Perhaps. So here's someone that's really godly. The people's like, man, I ain't risking my life. I'm not giving my life for them. He said, maybe for a good person. Perhaps for a good person. Someone would die. But he said, Christ died for the ungodly. So he said, the natural person would not give his life for someone that's godly or good. But Jesus gave his life for people that are evil. That's the distinction he's making. He's trying to draw attention to that. The natural person who might even be a good person is not going to give his life. For someone else. Now think about that. How many of you would give your life for someone that was evil? Someone that you knew was going to sin in the very ways that you're about to die for them again. Like you wouldn't do that. 
if you had the inclination to do it, it would be at best for someone who's a relative that you love or something. Now, it's one thing to sign your organs away if you get into a car accident like at the MVA. You dead already. You can have that. I don't mind. That's different than me making a decision to give my life for someone who's going to commit the same sin after I give it. There's no way I'm going to do that, let alone give up my son to die, knowing what, you're, what he's dying for, you're going to commit tomorrow. It would defeat the purpose to me. This is what this verse is saying. You're not going to give up your life. For a person, the natural person won't give up their life for someone that's godly or good. For one person. But Jesus, one person, gives up his life for the millions and billions that are evil. And for the people who are going to, in this room, yours included, who are going to sin in the very ways that he died for in the first place. He's saying, I'm doing this while you're still evil. I'm choosing to die to show you my love because the consequence of Jesus' love is his death. And he's willing to do this while you're evil, while you're sinners, while we're sinners. He dies for billions of people. But one person wouldn't die for another person that is a pretty good person. You'd be hard-pressed to find it. When he says, though for a good person, someone might perhaps even die, God's saying someone might strongly entertain the notion of giving up their life. But Jesus didn't do it for people who are good and who are just. He said, while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And that's what verse 8 is proving. Look at verse 8. But God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, were, past tense from God's perspective, doesn't mean we don't still struggle, but our identity as being sinners, is a past, that's past tense. If you believe in Jesus Christ, even though you sin, that is a past tense identity. This idea of I'm the worst sinner I know, cool. Say that if it helps you cultivate humility. But if that's your functional identity before God, you are wrong. Biblically speaking, you are wrong. And I think that actually counters the grace of God in your life. And I know it because for years I was trained and thought that way. That my focus is on my sinfulness and how sinful I am. And you will not see that in the New Testament at all. The only time believers are called sinners is when he's describing who you formerly were or who people currently are that don't believe in Jesus. Your identity has changed. Because if you're still a sinner, then you don't have peace with God. And that's a problem. It may not feel like a problem. You know what's funny? Mercy, we can't feel mercy and love, right? Sometimes it's, you don't feel that. But you also can't feel wrath and judgment either, though. 
You don't feel those either. And that's why there are people who are just living like, man, I'm good. What, what do we say today? That's your truth. All right, well, let's compare truths. Let's compare truths, because if I'm wrong in my truth, then what do I give up? I give up pursuing some sinful pleasures, raise my kids to be pretty good moral people. We die. I, got a fa- I ain't missing nothing. I might miss out on some fun, miss out on some opportunities. But for the most part, you live a relatively decent life if I'm wrong and you're right. Nothing. But if my truth is right and you're wrong, then you regret that for eternity, forever. I'll regret it for, no, no, 30, 40 years, maybe. I don't even regret it, really, because I'm enjoying. So maybe I miss out on some things for a few decades, but then when this is over, if I'm right and you're wrong, you miss out on everything, everything. So which truth am I willing to gamble with? Not the one that comes from here. Not the one that comes from here. God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the consequence of his love is his death. The natural person is not going to die for someone that's good. But the supernatural person, Jesus, dies for billions of people who are evil. He died for all of us who believe in him, knowing that we're going to stay in certain patterns of sin long after we say we have faith in him. And part of his love is to patiently remind us, correct us, and all of it. Do you know, I actually believe it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God to some degree when we're pursuing sinfulness, that we don't have confidence. If you're a believer and you're pursuing sinfulness, God's love for you is going to be you don't feel confident. (laughs) Because if he doesn't, then you continue in that. The whole point of not having confidence is due to God saying, I love you enough to not allow you to continue to live like this. So I am going to confuse you. I am going to take away some of that confidence. You are not going to feel comfortable. I am going to turn the heat up on your hypocrisy, not because I'm judging you or condemning you, because I'm trying to get you to see you need to come back home. The culture says the opposite. Be who you are. Be who you are. Be who you are. It's not the gospel message. The gospel message, the world's message is come as you are. Come as you are. We ain't going to judge you. We ain't saying nothing. Come as you are is the world's gospel. The Bible's gospel is come as you are, but don't stay as you came. Don't stay as you came. I'm going to change you. I'm going to help you grow. So you come as you are. I'm loving you on those terms while you're sinners. But then I love you enough to take you away from some of that, to take you away from those habits and patterns. There's a reason why you just don't feel comfortable when you believe in God and you, you're just struggling. You just don't feel comfortable. 
You can last a little while. If you are a Christian, you can go to certain degrees, depending on your level of conscience and depending on your sensitivity to the spirit. You can go for a period of time and feel like everything is good. But at some point, God is going to say, okay, that's enough. No more confidence for you. Now let's put the pressure up. And all of a sudden, now it's, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening. That's the love of God. To say, I'm not going to let you just keep doing what you do. I love you too much for that. I'd rather you lose some confidence and let me steer you back home than you keep with this self-confidence and lose your eternal home. The consequence of his love is his death. On the other side, the consequence of his death is his love. Look at verse 9. This is one of those, what more can I say, what more can I do statements. Listen to this. How much more then, this is based on um, being forgiven. So it's, it's verse 8, he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9. How much more then? Since we have now been declared righteous by his blood. Remember, declared righteous from God's perspective means not guilty. Or you're justified. You are not guilty. When you stand before God, even though we're all aware of things that we've done, some of them we didn't really make the progress in that we thought we would have before we died, we'll stand before God and he'll, he'll declare us not guilty because we had faith in Jesus Christ. Not because we said we, were, we don't even care, we're just going to live a sinful life. No, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying you have faith in Jesus Christ, and so when you fail, you fail forward. Everybody gets tackled. But believers get one yard. We get tackled, fall forward. We move the chains. He says, how much more then, since we have now been declared not guilty, declared righteous by his blood, will we be, seen, be saved, from, saved, through, saved from him through his wrath? This is a very powerful statement. Listen to what he's saying. If it's true that Jesus, you have faith in Jesus, then you're declared not guilty now. Then what comes after that is even more true. So the judgment, the wrath that comes after that when you die is even more true because your faith, you're declared righteous now is true. So this is what he's saying. Christ's death guarantees no wrath for us. Here's why this is hard for us to grasp, because that's not the way we process it, right? This is how we think. Okay, I believe in Jesus now. I hope I'm okay later. I believe in Jesus now. I hope I make it later. Now, we don't think this all the time, but that's the subtle fear for every believer at some point. I believe now. I hope I make it later. So the emphasis for us is on the later when we stand before God. That's what we're worried about. I mean, if you, if you ever sit down and have a conversation with Christians and just you talk about death. I'm surprised how many believers are afraid to die. 
Now, granted, we all have some desires we want to see. What Becky said, I think, was from the Lord. And I think it because the Lord said it to me, too. I'm joking. Sort of. Great minds think alike, they say. Becky, you have a great mind, Becky. I really appreciate you. Great mind. But believers are more afraid to die than some unbelievers. But Paul's perspective in Philippians was to live as Christ, to die as what? It's gain. Paul's like, look, and he was struggling. In Philippians, Paul's chained to a Roman soldier, and he's writing this letter, and he's sitting there thinking, man, I mean, if I live, I want to live for Christ, and I want to be around y'all and help y'all grow. But if I die, I get to be with Christ. To die is gain. So the dilemma for Paul was not being afraid to die and being afraid to be with Jesus because he was confident that when he sees that when he dies, he's with Jesus and the crown of life for all the perseverance through all of the challenges that he's facing is going to be waiting for him. He wasn't afraid to die. He was afraid to leave them because they weren't ready yet, he thought. He said, look, I want to die is gain, but I would rather remain here a little bit for your benefit to help you grow. That's how I feel as a dad. I'm not afraid to die, but I want to see my boys come up. I want to see them come up. I'd like to be there when they get married. I got this dance already that me and my wife are going to do when they get married. <laughs> Straight embarrass my kids. I am. It goes something like this. And all that. Oh, I want all that smoke when they get married. So I'm going to be like, finally. Lord willing, if that's the Lord's will for them. If not, then we'll do that dance or something else. I got it picked out on the song, too. Of course I got things I want to see, right? We all do. But afraid to die, though? Afraid to die as a believer? There's something that we don't believe in. There's something we don't believe in. There's something that God has said that we're just not confident about. Them. It's one thing to be like, Lord, I want to see my kids grow up and all of that. Sure. Sure. But it's another to be like, I don't want to die. I'm afraid to stand before God. Because, see, the emphasis for us is on that. When, what is he going to say when we see him? But in the passage, God says, well, shoot, that part is, is nothing. The emphasis for God is on the cross. So if Jesus, died on the, if Jesus died on the cross, if you believe in that, oh, then you good over here then. If you are, if you are declared righteous now, then when you get here, oh, that's nothing. Now, how much more are you protected over here because you lived here? You believed in Jesus here. I mean, do, brothers and sisters, do we honestly think that God does not see us struggling, fighting, persevering, praying, reading, fighting, and then going to say, after you do all that, when you die, ha ha, fooled you? What kind of a God would he be if he did that? God who sees us struggling, fighting, praying, reading, struggling, and all of that, knowing we're doing it because we believe in him, is like, man, when you get over here, you good. You good. The emphasis from God is on the cross. So he says, how much more then did Christ die for sinners? Since we have been declared not guilty, will we be saved from him through wrath? He's saying, look. If, 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 this is, if Christ did this, then you can guarantee that nothing's going to happen to you when you stand before me over here. You are good. 
You are good. That's how significant the cross is. When we believe in Jesus, we accept his suffering for us then. We agree to suffer for him now. And by that, we avoid the suffering from him later. God sees all of it. He knows the fight. He knows who we are. He sees the struggle. I would even venture to say he's okay with the struggle. Listen, maturity in the Lord is not the absence of struggle. It's the willingness to persevere and believe in him in the midst of it. That's maturity. All the people who didn't, what did Jesus say? Jesus said it when he was talking at, 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 at uh, Matthew's house and Levi's house. What did he say to the Pharisee? He said, I didn't come to call the righteous people who don't struggle, who know they good. I didn't come to call them. He said, I came to call sinners to repentance. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. You good. It's those who are sick. We are living, those of us who are pursuing the Lord, we are living like we're sick. He sees that. He puts the emphasis on the cross and now and says, because of that, how much more are you guaranteed to be saved from his wrath later? It's a battle for faith that we must believe it because it's not our experience. We think, I believe this now. Will I be good later? He says, you believe this now. You most certainly are good later. Excuse me, later. Certainly are good. This is God's word. This is God's word. This is his perspective. This is what he wants people to know. In other words, he's saying, what more can I say? What more can I do? What else does God need to do besides give up Jesus' only son to die for us while we're still sinners? And then to tell us over and over and over again through his word that even though we still sin, he forgives us and loves us. And even though we do those things, he has a place prepared for us in heaven if we persevere to the end. What more can he say? He moves us along in verse 10. This is a beautiful picture in verse 10. He says, if for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more? Again, so here's the cross. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? The emphasis is on the cross. Now, here's a beautiful picture. You know what reconciliation is? Reconciliation is is essentially two parties in conflict, in a quarrel, that come together and end the quarrel. Two parties in a conflict, in a fight, that come together and end that fight. They agree to peace, no more fighting, no more war. In this passage it says, while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Here's the wild part about this statement. Because many of us, many people, don't even know that they are in a fight, in war with God. Reconciliation is one thing when two people know we have a problem 
and we need to resolve it. I've sat in front of many husbands and wife, many different people who need to reconcile with each other. We know we have a problem and we need to come to a, a decision and agree to not sin against each other and all of those different things. This is when two people see that and they reconcile. God is saying reconciliation has happened, but towards people who don't even know they have a problem with God. Before I was a Christian, I wasn't thinking like I got a real problem with God. I mean, I wasn't dumb enough to think I was going to heaven for the way I was living, especially when I was in the street. But it wasn't like I was thinking like I have a real problem with God, like I need to be reconciled with God. God says we're reconciled. So what it means is we have a problem with God. Many of us don't even know it. So God initiates the reconciliation process so we can have peace with them. But many people didn't even know they were at war with them. Until he said, well, now we have peace. That's, the, that's his love. You're at war with God. And it's not a war that's winnable. This is what makes grace, which, which, what part of what makes grace so amazing. How many people do you know that don't really believe in Jesus and do not think that they have a problem with God? I'm not talking about your friend that grew up in church and has now walked away from the Lord and who's heard some of this stuff and can, on some intellectual level, agree to what you're saying. I'm talking about the average person just doesn't even know about God, doesn't care, and is not thinking, I'm unreconciled with God. We, I need peace with God. They have no clue. So you know what we do? This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. So we tell people that you actually have a problem and Jesus is the solution. Because he did it for us. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, he initiates this reconciliation through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? He, does, he means saved throughout this life and saved from the judgment. If you are a genuine believer, God does not care how we feel. He doesn't care. You are reconciled and declared not guilty because of your faith in Jesus Christ. That is God, the way God did it, and he knew each and every one of us would sin in the ways that we sin and still said they are mine. Despite our attitudes, our lusts, our lack of self-control, all of it, our fear of man, our sinful judgment, our bitterness, our resentment, you name it our propensity for gossip, whatever you want to call it. He says we're reconciled because of faith in Christ, and he's molding us to no longer appreciate those things and to see them for what they are. And it takes time. It takes time. We are a work in progress, as they say. And this is what makes grace amazing. And he concludes in this passage, at least, in verse 11, he circles back to a theme that we heard in verses 1 through 5, the rejoice theme. We rejoice 
in the hope of the glory of God, we rejoice in our afflictions. Then he says here in verse 11, not only that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. If you notice in the Bible, it, it always, it, it does this weird dynamic, right, of past tense, present tense, future tense. God says that we're saved, past tense, we will be saved, future tense, but we're also saved, present tense. God says this a lot. I don't think he's saying it to confuse us. I think he's explaining it to us to encourage us that at every facet of our understanding, we're saved. So from God's perspective, outside of time, he can say people are saved because he knows who those people are. He encourages us. Then he tells us, though, we are saved, but he's also saving us. We continue. So this is why we persevere. This is why I don't agree with that once saved, always saved, if that means I can profess to believe in Jesus and then just do whatever. Because right. then what did Christ die for then? If he didn't die to, to help to change the people to be more like Jesus, then what's the point? We could be anything if that's the case. I know some non-Christians that pray more than Christians do. I know some, some Jehovah's Witnesses that evangelize more than we do. So if it's just that, then okay, then that's nothing. No, it's Jesus. He saves us. God is continually saving us. And in the end, we will be saved as from our experience. We'll get it. So we rejoice. We rejoice. Rejoicing is not passive. It's something that's done with confidence and hope. It's, it's expressions of exalting God because of what he said. If we really want to grow in our faith, we really want to grow in our faith, then when the Bible says rejoice, Rejoice in suffering, rejoice in affliction, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's not a suggestion, it's a command. That we think about our life from the true promises of God. And when that confidence is there, you will be surprised at what you'll, what you'll tolerate and what you'll stand for. I'll close with a story I've told multiple times, but it just reminds me of being in India and we were sharing the gospel, and we were surrounded by these people. And we didn't speak the language. And if you've never been to a foreign country where they don't, you don't speak the language at all, everything they say sounds scary. So they could be like, hey, I love your shoes, man. Where did you get that? But when you hear like, you're just like, whoa, hey, take it easy, bro. <laughs> Calm down, fam. Like, whoa, you know, you're looking for something, like you're getting your keys, anything. You don't know what they're saying. So we're surrounded by these people. And we're trying to share the gospel. And then I hear this music coming from the corner. That's exactly right. It had a rhythm. I was like, hold up, man. Hold up, man. Let me just, hold up. So I turn and look, and these, 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 it was a satanic festival. They were worshiping the devil, and they come out. And when those seven dudes came out, 
the 200 or so people that were in front of us went berserk. And there were nine of us on stage. Nine of us. And I turned around and everyone was crying. Terrified. Terrified. And so I just went to each one and said, remember what God we serve. Remember what God we I had. I didn't know what else to say. Man of many words, all I could say was, remember what God we serve. Remember what God we serve. Remember what God we serve. And then I thought, wow. I was engaged to Betsy. I thought, wow, Lord. It's not your will that I marry Betsy. Because I was like, they're going to kill us. And I've been shot at. I've been through all that. There was nothing like this. I was like, wow, we're going to die. These people are yelling and screaming, and they look angry. And I was like, wow, Lord, I really thought it was your will that I married Betsy. But I guess not, because I'm getting ready to be martyred. And I thought, wow. And I just felt like this was from the Spirit. And I said, well, I'm from D.C. They're going to remember that they killed me. <laughs> and I walked to the front, and I said, we're not afraid, Lord. We're not afraid. And I thought rocks were going to come. I'm not sharing that because I'm brave. I'm sharing that because the Spirit convinced me more than ever that Jesus was real and I was ready to die. I was ready to die. And I walked out there first. Kill me first because I will be with the Lord. May the posture of our hearts be the new song that Tim Sunner taught us connected to the word that Becky encouraged us to remember and what we hear today. We were sinners, but Christ died for us. Since that's true, man, let's rejoice, be confident, and in hope that what comes after that is true. No genuine believer should be afraid to die. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. What more can he say? Jesus is not going to die again. He's not sending another way of salvation. He's given us his spirit. We are to some degree responsible for believing the promises that he put in this word and persevering to the end for his glory and our good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, to varying degrees, as I stated, there are moments, whether it's from affliction, from to us or someone we love and care about, from a simple circumstance, a simple desire that's unmet, a heart deferred. Whatever the case may be, we are at constant war with wondering, sometimes even fearing, or at worst, actually believing that your love for us, your our hope in you, and all the different things that we are challenged by. When you said in Jude 22 to have mercy on those who doubt, all the whatever summed up in that doubt, 
is usually from our experience, our senses, where we, we can't see, touch, smell, feel, hear as much as we want to. Father, if we were honest, functionally, we want to have our faith be sight. We want to have the confidence that you hear us the way they're confident, I'm confident they hear me. And we often fall into various places with that. We're aware of our own shortcomings. We're aware of some of the habits and patterns we willingly walk into, not realizing the destruction that awaits. And we can evaluate sometimes your, your seemingly, your seemingly withdrawal. And be discouraged and or we desire the things of the world that seem more fun, pleasing than you. I pray for any of us who are discouraged, even if it's quiet discouragement, who are not altogether confident of, of your love for us, or if we are, but there are moments where our circumstances take us like, like John the Baptist to ask, are you really the Messiah or not? I love that you didn't condemn John the Baptist for that question. You actually told the audience that he's the greatest born of all women. And they heard his disciples ask you, are you still the Messiah from his perspective? You didn't condemn him. But you spoke to the heart of the issue. Blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. I pray for those who are in the room today that may be offended at what you've allowed to happen in their life, whatever circumstance that is. And that offense may be, may be, it may be contributing to a lack of passion for you, a lack of confidence in you, a withdrawal from you, a love for other things besides you a distraction, as you told Martha. Even this deep kind of theology takes place practically in our lives. And I pray that we would apply the reality that we were sinners in your eyes. We were ungodly, but now we are declared righteous. We are not guilty because of Jesus. And because of that designation now, then we can have confidence that when we stand before you later, that we are saved even all the more so. But I pray in that, Lord, you would help us to not be satisfied with where we are in you. Help us to not settle for, our, for any mediocrity, but to continue to pursue you and to fight for this wonderful reality, even, especially when it doesn't feel like it's a thing to fight for. You became us, so you sympathize with us, as your word says in Hebrews 2. So help us, as your word says you will in Hebrews 2. You were able to help those who are suffering. Help us continue to believe in you despite even ourselves. Help us to believe that we are declared righteous by you and that we don't have to walk with our heads down because we're aware of our sinfulness, 
but we can walk with our head up because we're aware of your forgiveness and your patience and the fact that you chose us to be saved knowing that we were going to sin and still said, I'll take them. That's more true of them than even me standing here saying it because it came from you. Let it be our reality. In your name we pray. Amen.